Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Welcome back, everybody. This is the second episode with James Bellerjou. So, you know, James, on our last episode, we were just talking about how we can plan for the unforeseen. And I know that you have some extra thoughts about it. So let's just keep going. Sure. Thanks, Maria. Uh, the thing I wanted to add was I think it's helpful for system designers to adopt something closer to what I will call the lawyer's mindset. And let me explain what that is and whether people think it's helpful, you could decide for yourself. But it's similar to the concept in, say, GDPR, where you try to build in privacy by design, or what I think Elsa referred to recently about AI and medicine as ethics by design. For lawyers, we ask a more pessimistic question in most of our work, which is what could go wrong? For example, when we're entering into a new business relationship or drafting a contract, So you first generate a depressingly long list of things that could go wrong. And in each case, you ask, well, what do I want to have happen when or if that thing should go wrong? It is not at all defeatist or a mark of failure to consider how systems will break down and how people will disappoint us. The failure, in my view, comes in not sufficiently anticipating all those things that could go wrong. So in my view, the biggest mistake system designers make is assuming that people will act perfectly or actually even reasonably at all times. We know they won't, so plan much more actively for misuse and breakdowns of your system. If putting yourself in that so-called lawyer's mindset helps you anticipate and plan for what could go wrong, I think it's a useful activity for many people, including non-lawyers, to practice more often. I completely agree with you. And and that's at the end why why we do contracts, right? When you read all the clauses of a contract, it's, like it's not that you want those things to happen, but you know, that's the safeguards you're establishing if it happens, like how should we proceed? And and it would be agreed between the parties. It makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm also biased about that because I, I do have I do have this wish list of studying more law. <laughs> I think it's useful for anyone. So that's cool. So James, I'd like to, to go back to something that you mentioned before. And it's also one of the topics that we usually cover. We like it. It's something we definitely should be working on. It's regarding bias. You mentioned that, you know, sometimes actions to try to reduce or to be aware of bias often there's nothing to reduce. And sometimes it even backslash, right? So Sometimes an unconscious bias training can actually end up increasing bias than doing what, what it was supposed to. So you're not a big believer, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it, you seem like not a big believer of these behavior change techniques. On the same time, I do understand that you are pro those continuous improvement processes. And you think human human nature is pretty much the same from our ancestors. So in your point of view, instead of trying to change behavior and decrease bias, would the key here to have the right incentives in place that drives our basic motivation and needs to make changes, would it be this continuous search for evolving and for improvement and maybe this lifelong method of learning and and just trying to to be better okay so if i can rephrase that a little bit and then you tell me and make sure i answer your question 
we can easily identify bias in a lot of settings. And it is, I think everyone would agree, a good objective to try and find ways to reduce bias. I'm with you 100% on both points. What I would say we have to be careful about is the methods we've historically used often to try and address bias have not been effective. Mainly, pointing it out and training people about what it is does absolutely nothing to reduce bias. So just telling someone they have an issue and pointing out the issue and explaining all the ways in which that issue arises really isn't a super effective way to drive behavioral change. When it comes to behavioral change, I said before, and I'll repeat it, I think we are absolutely capable of change. I should mention, Maria, that my undergraduate degree was in psychology. So I spent a lot of years working on and thinking about how people think and all of the interesting ways you can directly and indirectly influence their thinking. There are things that we can do. There's quirks of behavior that we can take advantage of to help increase the odds of getting people behave the way that you would like. But actually, the thing that I am most in favor of, because it's direct, it's clear, it's transparent, is the word that you used in your question, which is incentives. Incentives are so wonderful and so powerful. If you design your system, if you design incentives to get the behavior that you want, you can deal with the fact that your customers, your clients, your employees, whoever it is you're trying to address, are themselves imperfect. You can deal with an imperfect person by appealing to their incentives. So, you know, coming back to the lawyer's mindset I discussed a moment ago, one of the ways you deal with potential problems in your relationship is to create incentives to help people behave the way you want. So, for example, if you don't want to get hauled into court for a minor contract issue, you can build in a cure period in your agreement or an escalation process where the other side has to first talk to management before they can start a dispute. Or another idea would be you could have the losing party pay the costs of a lawsuit which does a great job of helping prevent people from filing frivolous lawsuits. So there's lots of ways to design incentives, and they are a super reliable way to drive people's behavior. You can use positive incentives, negative incentives. Sometimes I hear people complain about how bias drives undesired behavior in the workplace. You know, in, if you look at discrimination in the workplace that might result from bias, there are super strong legal protections against it. And there are a lot of smart lawyers just itching for a chance to make their fortune by suing companies for it. And of course, this is an incentive system, right? You do see really significant lawsuits that come up as a result, because again, people are not perfect. I would never pretend that they are. But my contention would be, Maria, in a company of any size, the chance of there being widespread discrimination that goes unchecked is virtually zero. That's my contention. And all the people who are afraid that there's bias out there and it's affecting them in the workplace, I'm not going to say that it isn't happening. It is, but it is not a widespread problem. It can't be because the incentives to correct it and find it and sue companies for it are just too strong. By the way, if you're still not happy, though, with the way things are in your environment, in your company, I say, great, more power to you. Work on adapting or changing or strengthening the incentive systems before you try adapting human behavior, and you're probably going to be more successful. Okay, great. You know, now I have a different topic. When we were talking, you know, when we got to know each other, I thought that you had this very interesting perspective 
about new generations. You know, here on, on, on Future Hacker, we are always talking about how they're more engaged, how they're more responsible, how they're the actors of change. And when we were talking about it, it just seemed that your view is not quite the same, right? So I don't want to be put, the one putting words on your mouth. So please, you know, tell me your view about the new generations. Yeah, you're trying to get me in trouble, Maria. First, I say that discrimination doesn't exist, and now you want me to say what I really think about generations. <laughs> I want to say this. I admire greatly the enthusiasm that younger generations bring to the workplace. It's so great to see people who are eager and motivated with ideas for changing the world. The world is a better place for it, and every generation deserves and usually takes its chance to see what change they can bring. I observe that the desire for change often comes with, if I'm honest, a fairly critical attitude on the part of those younger people who are not happy with the way the prior generations have been running things, which I totally get. It's easy to see the mistakes that other people have made. My advice is not just for younger generations, but for every generation. And in some regards, the more accomplished you are, the more this advice applies to you. And that is be humble. Before you go about disrupting everything, it can be extremely helpful to ask a couple questions. First, why are things the way they are? And two, as we've talked about before, what unintended consequences might come from your new change or technology or development? And by the way, ask yourself this, do you think you're really the first person to ever ask the questions you're asking? Do you think no one ever tried to make things better before you? Why do you suppose you are the first one and special one to be able to successfully implement some kind of fundamental change when no one did before? Now, understand me well, this is not at all to say that we can't make transformational change. Obviously we do, it happens quite a lot. What I would urge disruptors to consider is the possibility that although they are passionate about an issue and convinced about the rightness of their issue, they could still be wrong. And what happens if you're wrong? The more transformative your technology or your idea or your proposal, the greater the potential good and the greater the potential harm. So as with many things a lawyer might say to you, we want to take both sides of an issue. The answer is it depends a little bit. We need the enthusiasm, we need the optimism, we need the drive for change. But at the same time, I wouldn't mind a little bit of humility for people to say, well, okay, I'm really not the first one to ever think about these issues and how come I'm uniquely positioned to fix it now? Listen, I do feel this is a very important critique and I'm pretty sure you know most of the listeners would agree to that. But the thing is that when assessing a situation, and and, and I'm talking about both you know this young generation and ourselves and, and the older ones, like for everybody, when assessing something, usually it's common for people in general to understand the current scenario, the tools we have in place, the technologies we have on hand, and plan for the future. But this exercise of analyzing what's being tried and done before and understanding the reasons for failure, unfortunately, is not always on the plan. And I do agree with you that's critical to, you know, being able to evolve instead of trying the same things that has been tried before. But sometimes I feel that this type of information is not easily accessible at all, especially when we bring it to the corporate world, for example, in which people are constantly changing jobs, looking for short-term results, avoiding failure, 
keeping track of it is even harder. It's usually whatever happened, it's hidden under the carpet, right? So in your mind, how should we be planning for the future? Is it just a matter of mindset, of questioning more, of being more inquisitive? Or should we have a little piece of history hacking in ourselves to be able to properly investigate before moving forward? So I like that question. And I would say both would help. Both would help a lot. You've probably heard the phrase, people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. I think there's some validity to that. But I think actually the most helpful thing is probably the mindset, just being open to the possibility that there is or there are additional perspectives besides your own doesn't mean you have to do anything but consider them. And already just the consideration, oh, I could be wrong, is extremely helpful. By the way, the flip side to allowing yourself to think, oh, I could be wrong, is to not place too much weight on the opinions of experts. Experts are wrong all the time too. So the two helpful things I would say a person could add to their mental tool set are the ability to say, I could be wrong, and the ability to allow that experts could be wrong. Both of those things give you a sufficiently skeptical mindset, I think, to avoid making obvious mistakes. When it comes to people hiding their mistakes, I think, of course, you're right. No one likes to see their mistakes paraded before the public, and so they don't advertise them. But that one doesn't bother me as much. Anyone who reads the newspaper is aware and has to agree that big mistakes anyway, big mistakes have a way of bubbling up if there's malfeasance. So if people have acted against the law, there is a tremendous incentive for whistleblowers to turn the company in because they can get a financial reward. But even short of malfeasance or wrongdoing, enough mistakes come to light all the time for us to learn from them if we are looking for them. So the part of business life that I found most instructive was the problems experienced by other companies. Well, actually, maybe that's not true. The second most instructive, of course, your own mistakes are the most painful. And if you're paying attention, you can learn from them. But I have to say, short of your own crisis or, or problem, if you look for and see other companies struggling and making mistakes, and they do all the time, smart people can therefore learn from the mistakes of others. Even though I agree with you, a lot of mistakes are hidden. Enough of them come to light that they're a great tool for learning. You also have this different idea about the future of work, which we've been debating a lot here. So you heard a couple of our guests mentioning, you know, how everything is going to change after COVID, how, you know, the relationships are changing and things are going to be more remote. And, you know, this obligation of having to go to the office is, is changing as well. Priorities are changing. And you seemed a little skeptical about that. Could we go over your point of view? And, you know, the reason I'm asking those questions, James, you mentioned that I'm, I'm trying to make you in trouble, but it's so refreshing to be able to hear different points of view on the podcast, right? And sometimes we're just talking about very similar things, despite having so many diverse on the guest list, but still, it's really refreshing to hear different thoughts. And, you know, I'd love to discuss that with you. 
I appreciate your openness, and I will admit, Maria, to sometimes saying things that I expect will be a bit controversial, specifically because I enjoy the discussion and debate and feedback that arises as a result. I don't need everyone to agree with me because I am open to the possibility that I might be wrong, and I think you get more interesting and full discussions when you have really divergent viewpoints expressed. So if you ask me about the future of work, my answer today is going to be, I think it's pretty much going to be the same as the history of work. That is to say, companies are still going to have buildings and factories, people are still going to come into the office, and people will still very much want to meet in person, and they will meet in person. Some number of knowledge workers will have a lot more flexibility than they did in the past. I absolutely agree with that as well. A lucky few will have such valuable skills that they will be able to work from the beach a few hours a day, wherever they want to in the world. But you know, I don't think that's most employees, and I don't think you should assume it's going to be you. And when I say you, I don't mean you, Maria. I mean anyone listening to this podcast. Consider that so long as not everybody is working remotely, some people are going to be in the office. My prediction is management is going to be in the office because, hey, having an office and needing to be in that office is going to be a status symbol going forward. Look, I'm so important. People need to see me. I need to be in the office. So with that being the case, some of your more ambitious colleagues are also going to be in the office, schmoozing with the boss, maybe going out to lunch with them more often because you're not there. So who do you think management is going to think of when it comes to handing out work and new projects? the person who's just down the hall, who they can grab for two minutes, or the person they have to schedule a Zoom call to, to meet. So one final thought maybe about it, and that would be the pandemic genuinely caused a lot of people to think hard about what it is they want from their career and from work. And I can totally understand people who say, hey, I don't want to work the way boomers or Generation X did. I think the great resignation therefore is real, but at the same time, it's also exaggerated and overblown. Some of those people who did sideline themselves are going to come back into the workforce. Maybe they start their own company. Maybe they work part-time. Maybe they change fields and jobs entirely. But I think many people took what started as an involuntary break and just extended it. And that's nice, but it's not sustainable for everyone. Yeah, you know, it, it does make a lot of sense, your point of view. And, and there has been a lot of discussion of how this, you know, this theory of, of complete change of you can work from anywhere. That's for the few. That's for sure. That's for the few. A few privileges that, that, that can do that, right? And there's been a lot of discussion as well regarding, you know, people that actually it's going to the office is going somehow to be on the spotlight, you know, regarding people that choose to be at home. I think there's still a lot to get to figure it out. And on the same time, it's good for the people that were able to stop, pause, and just have a changing life that maybe they were supposed to have anyways. And this was just the big push that they needed, right? But for sure, the traditional somehow is not going to die all of a sudden. Um, I have another question for you that I had to ask, given your amazing experience on the topic. So you have, for decades, you have been working with ESG projects, and naturally, it has to be one of our dear topics when discussing about the future. So I'm going to try to be a little more objective in this question. So which do you believe are both you know, the main challenges and the main drivers for an organization to successfully implement an ESG program? 
I do love the ESG topic, Maria, and I think I can be clear and give a single answer to that question. If I had to pick just one topic that was most important, it would be selecting among competing priorities. It's the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity in the ESG space. And the reason is the list of potential stakeholders is so long, and each stakeholder feels passionately that their set of issues is the most important. And some of those stakeholders are super vocal. A small number of people really can create a lot of noise for their issue. But objectively, that does not mean that their issue or set of issues are the right ones for your company to focus on. So if you want to successfully run an ESG program, that means you have to sure be aware of what your stakeholders care about and what are the potential priorities you could work on. But then you've got to design your strategy and allocate resources in a top-down process you really need to consider where you're going to have the greatest impact because your resources are limited. It may relate to what's in the headlines or what people are bothering you about, but honestly, it may not. Each company has the potential for a different impact, and it depends on their particular circumstances. So in that context, I can definitely recommend that anyone who's responsible for setting ESG strategy look into something called the Copenhagen Consensus That was a group of very smart people who tried to figure out and provide answers to the question of what initiatives would have the biggest impact on the global issues of concern. You know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals list something like 169 individual targets. That is just 160 or more too many for any organization to reasonably focus on. I could also maybe, Maria, advise people to avoid one mistake I made in the early days, which is even if you have now by virtue of the process we just described, placed a lower priority on one particular stakeholder's concern, never, ever, ever suggest to them that the issue itself isn't important. It obviously is important, at least to that stakeholder group. So what I learned to say, you see, I can be tactful if I have to, is, hey, yes, we agree this is an important topic, but considering our particular circumstances, we think we can have the greatest impact right now over here on this issue. So acknowledge the relevance and importance of issues, but nonetheless be consequent. That's what having a strategy means. You pick some issues to work on and you don't work on others. And that's the biggest hope and the biggest promise for people to really make a difference in ESG. And the good part is that there's still a lot of work to do on that, right? Oh, yes. For sure. If if you list the priorities, there's going to be just a huge list just afterwards. So that's a field that, you know, that's a good field for the future of work for sure, right? (laughs) Yes. James, I have a very last question for you. Unfortunately, because we're running out of time, I just could feel that I could just grab a cup of tea and keep talking to you for a long, long time. But we have to end. But I couldn't end without that. So after all, what does it mean to live a good life? Any advice to our listeners out there? (laughs) You don't end on an easy question, do you? Of course (laughs) I had to mess that. <laughs> I like it. And of course, I'm trying to give advice on this. And my advice is don't listen to me or anyone else, but rather ask yourself what you want in life and don't accept the standard answer if it doesn't feel right to you. A lot of people can be wrong about a lot of things most of the time. And who cares what the crowd says when what the crowd does leads to poor results, like people generally being unhappy and unsatisfied. If there's one key concept I think the Stoics offer, it would be your happiness depends on learning to distinguish between things that are in your control, partly in your control, and things that are outside your control. 
if we look at it, many of the things that people pursue in life are largely out of their control. Career progression, wealth, power, fame, relationships. That doesn't mean you don't pursue those things and pursue them with vigor, but you have to make sure to ground your happiness and well-being in your own mind, in your self-possession, because your own peace of mind is something no one can take away, no matter what's going on around you. So that would be my advice. If you want more inspiration in a user-friendly way on stoic lessons, among other things, check out the Moral Letters for Modern Times, which, as you mentioned, is on klugme.com. I really enjoyed talking, Maria. I absolutely loved it. Thank you so much, James. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Future.